Throughout the centuries, people have made some pretty bold claims. Now, many of these claims that they've made, they've been able to prove that they were true. But some people, while they claim that they are true, they just haven't been able to prove these claims. How many grandparents do we have in the room? Go and raise your hand. We know you love to brag about your grandkids, all right? I, don't, I didn't say bring out your pictures. I just said raise your hands, okay? Grandparents, I'll go ahead and tell you, you guys are the worst. You don't even know what I'm going to say yet. You're the worst at claiming that you're going to discipline our children the way that mom and dad ask them to, and then you never do it, don't you? Go ahead and admit it. Confession's good for the soul. We're in church. Speaking of grandparents not keeping the claim that they are strong disciplinarians and we want to raise our kids to be, our grandkids to be disciplined, I've never seen a truer video than this one. I want you to watch this video and tell me, parents, do you agree about this with the grandparents that are raising your children? So true. Grandparents claim, hey, we're going to discipline our kids, but we don't necessarily, you don't necessarily keep those claims. Well, this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 5, and we're going to look at the greatest claim that has ever been made. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them with me to John chapter 5, and we're going to see this startling claim that Jesus is going to make. But the difference between this claim that Jesus is going to make and all the other claims is that Jesus was able to prove his claim to be true over and over and over again. This is the second week that we're in John chapter 5, and in the very first part of of John chapter 5, we saw that Jesus revealed himself as Lord, as Savior. He did that through his works and through his words um, that he proved that he had power, that he had authority. But we are now going to see that beginning in verse 19, where our text is going to pick up, that um, Jesus is going to show us that his authority demands obedience. That once we recognize Jesus' authority in our life, that he doesn't just say, oh, now now you recognize my authority. But now, once you recognize Jesus' authority in your life, he demands obedience. Let's give a little bit of context before we jump into our text. You remember here that the religious leaders, that they are upset because what had just happened? Jesus had just healed this lame man. And they're wanting now to kill him. But we're going to see why they wanted to kill him. But in order to understand that, you've got to go one verse back. So we read this verse two weeks ago, but look at verse 18, and let's see why the religious leaders say that they have a right to want to kill Jesus. So John chapter 5, verse 18 says this, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but now he was even calling God his own father, making himself, here's the claim, equal with God. And there you have it. The most startling claim that has ever been made or will ever be made right there, that Jesus claims that he is equal with God. What we're going to see in our text this morning, beginning in verse 19, is that while the religious leaders, their response to this claim was clearly wrong, we can tell that they understood the weight of this claim that Jesus was making. They fully understood the scope that he is actually claiming to be equal with God. Remember, Jesus had healed this lame man when he was in Jerusalem. 
He was at the temple and he was at the gate that was named after sheep. And there were all these crippled people who were there. But the main problem the religious leaders had was because of the day of the week in which he healed that man. And it was the what? The Sabbath. So right here in the midst of this argument that Jesus is having with the religious leaders of his day, he is making this startling claim that he is God. Now, in verses 19 through 29, you've got to kind of read it in, in, in totality. But Heath Harrelson's going to pick up next week and get the verses 25 through 29. But you're going to see that he claims this deity with God by describing this unity that he has. And listen here for just a second, because I'm going to go ahead and give you the main point of the, of the message. And then you can fall asleep or whatever. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But I want to give you the main point of where we're going before we even jump into the text, because my hope is that as we read the text, you'll be able to see this point proved over and over again. And the main point is this, that once we understand that Jesus is God, then it's easier to accept his authority over us. Once we accept the fact that Jesus not only claimed to be God, but we accept that he is God, then it's easier to accept his authority over us. What does that mean? That means that if, if he's God then whatever Jesus says is absolutely true. Whether we like it or not, whether we want it to be true, whether it's popular or not, whether it's what the culture says, Jesus is God, then what he says goes. Am I right? This is where you say yes. All right, just making sure you're awake here. Now, in the next 25 minutes, my goal is going to be to prove to you that Jesus is God. And if I can prove this to you, not using my words, because my words are meaningless, but using Scripture, if we can prove that Jesus, in fact, is God, then the application is very simple. It's simple, but it actually has massive implications. Because if at the end of the day we come to the conclusion that Jesus is equal with God, then if I believe that, then I've got to ask myself two questions. Number one, do I believe what Jesus says? Do I believe what he says? And secondly, does my lifestyle prove that I recognize his authority in my life? Now, listen, my, my assumption here today is that most people here, and again, this is just my assumption, only God knows the right answer, that most people here are genuine followers of Jesus. Not that you've signed a card, not that you've joined a church, but that you have committed your life to Jesus, that you have surrendered your life, you've repented of your sins, and you are following Jesus. And if that's you, then I know right now you're tempted to sit back and say, hey, I got it. I already believe that Jesus is God's son. I don't question Jesus' identity. I, I understand all that. So I can just zone out during this message. This message is important to me because I've already got it. I already believe what you're trying to prove. If that's you, let me tell you two reasons why I think this message and this text is important for you. Number one, when you remind yourself of who God is, not only do you remember who God is, but you remember who you are and who you are not. What do I mean? What I mean is that it should force you to recognize his authority over us. In other words, when you recognize that God is the authority in your life, you know that you're not the boss of you. You don't get to make the rules. You don't get to decide what is right and wrong. You have to submit yourself to the authority of what God says. And if Jesus is God, then what Jesus says is true. And secondly, 
In order to share the gospel with someone, we first must show them that Jesus is God. Because until they understand that Jesus is God's son and that Jesus and God are equal, they will never submit to his authority. They will never understand that what Jesus says is true even today. So my hope during this message is that we'll do both. That first, that we'll remind you of his authority in your life. And when you're reminded that God is the authority, he is the rule maker, he is the one that sets my path, when you do that, then you will allow and you will ask for the Holy Spirit continually to convict you of your life, to, co- to convince you of areas of your life that don't line up with his word. And then you'll say, I want to fall under, submit under the authority of Jesus Christ. Show me, Holy Spirit, ways that I can realign my life to match your word. And secondly, I hope to equip you with scriptures to prove that Jesus is equal to God. If I can do that, then maybe I can help you disarm others who will say, well, I believe that Jesus was a good man. I believe that he was a good teacher. I just don't think he's the only way for eternal life. See, for centuries, people have asked the question, who is Jesus Christ? Time after time and poll after poll, especially during Easter, we see these polls and Jesus usually comes up as one of, if not the most influential leaders who has ever walked the face of the earth. But people, whether they're historians, whether they're lay people, they still today are debating the identity of who exactly is Jesus. Because here's the thing. If someone can convince you that Jesus isn't God, that Jesus isn't equal to God, then they can help you to water down what Jesus' words actually were. They can help you to say, well, if Jesus didn't claim to be God, then then maybe we just need to read his words in context. Maybe we need to look at the cultural things when we're talking about Jesus. And Jesus' words, they're not really true in 2019. Surely he didn't still mean that today. So right now I'm going to warn you that what my goal is is to, to take this sanctuary and to turn it into a seminary in the next few moments. So I hope that you have a pen and hope that you have a piece of paper. On the back of your worship guide, there's a blank sheet of paper because I am going to, we're about to take a a crash course through God's word. There's gonna be lots of scriptures I'm gonna be throwing out at you. You may wanna write the references down because the goal in the next few moments is to answer one question. That is, did Jesus claim to be God in the flesh Or, as many of the skeptics will will say today, did his followers later invent those claims? So did this come from Jesus himself that he claimed to be equal with God? Or is it something that was later just invented and then then Christians try to add that in there? I'm going to share with you some scriptures, but I'm not going to come to the conclusion. I'm going to let you come to the conclusion yourself after we look at these scriptures. The first area we're going to see is that Jesus spoke frequently about not being from this world. He talked often about existing before coming to earth as a human. When I was a children's minister, I used to talk to the kids often at Christmas and say, Jesus didn't begin at Christmas. Jesus existed even before he came to earth. Don't trust me, trust God's word. Let's look at at four verses in the book of John. John 8, 23. He said to them, meaning Jesus, you are from below I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. John 6, verse 62. Then what if if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? 
In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed this prayer in John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory, here it is, that I had with you before the world existed. He told his disciples this in John 16, verse 28. I came from the Father, and I've come into the world, and now I am leaving the world, and now I am going to the Father. So we see that Jesus, he made four, those are at least four verses just in the book of John that he claimed that he existed before the world began and before, I mean, he didn't come from this earth, but he came from his Father in heaven. The second claim that Jesus made was he assumed the identity of being God, and by doing that, he claimed that he could do the following. I'm just putting the references next to these, so I want you to write these down. That because Jesus claimed to be God, here's what he said he could do. He could control people's eternal destiny. You see that in John 8, 24. He claimed that he had the authority over the Sabbath in Matthew 12, 8. He claimed that he had the the power to answer prayer in John 14, verses 13 and 14. He said that he was able to receive worship that God alone deserved in John 5, 23. And he also claimed that he had the power to forgive sins in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now, this is the one that really was a, a hang-up for the Jews because they believed that only God had the power, had the authority to forgive sins. Number three, Jesus declared himself to be the Messiah. He told people, I am the Messiah. I am God's anointed one. In John chapter 4, we were there a few weeks ago. We talked about this conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. And during this conversation, this is what he says in John chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Again, at the Garden of Gethsemane, he referred to himself as the Messiah. John chapter 17, verse 3, in this prayer that he's making to his father, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. A few weeks ago, I told you that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? that Christ is actually a title. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word translated Messiah. There are countless times all throughout the New Testament that Jesus refers himself as the Christ, as the Messiah. There's also countless times that other people refer to Jesus as the Christ, and he always accepts that term, that title. Finally, number four, Jesus referred to himself as the same covenant name for God. The covenant name for God was Yahweh. Anytime you see in your Bibles where it says, I am, that's the covenant name Yahweh that God's referring to himself. The name Yahweh, it was so sacred to the Jewish people that they wouldn't even pronounce that name. They wouldn't even write that name out. And listen to this claim that Jesus makes to those who will not agree that he is Yahweh. John 8, 24 I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In the Greek, that word he is not there after I am. In the Greek, all that it says is Jesus actually said, unless you believe that I am, you will die. Even when Jesus was being arrested, he's there at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he referred to himself as I am. I love this passage of scripture in John 18. 
It says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Look what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, I am he. Again, that he is not in the original Greek. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them there. But it gets even better. When Jesus says, these guys who are coming to arrest him, when they say, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus. And Jesus says, I am. Watch what happens in the very next verse. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Friends, there is power in God's name. Again, I'll I'll let you be the judge here. But I just don't know how you can look at all of these scriptures, and there's dozens more, and claim that Jesus did not claim that he was equal with God. That this is something that later on that people just made up. But if you still need encouragement, if you still need convincing, let me give you just three quick verses, all from the book of John, all from the mouth of Jesus, and you tell me if he was claiming to be God or not. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. John 12, 45, and whoever sees me, Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, what we're going to see in our main text this morning, before you get too nervous, it's only six verses, okay? What we're going to see is Jesus' response to the claim that the religious leaders are making that he could not have done this miracle on the Sabbath. But what's interesting about how Jesus responds is that instead of of, of explaining that he actually didn't violate the Old Testament regulations of the Sabbath, what he violated was the rabbinic additions, but not what the Old Testament had said about the Sabbath. But instead of, of going that way, he responds in an even more radical way. He claimed that he was equal with God. And by, and by claiming equality with God, he says that he had the right to do whatever he wanted on the Sabbath. And let me take a time out here for just a second. Because if Jesus claimed to the religious leaders of his day that he could do whatever he wanted in his life and in their life, don't you think the same is true with us today? That Jesus is telling us that he has the right to do whatever he wants in and through us, and our response should be that we gladly submit to his authority. So with that, let's look at John chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 19. The first two verses says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So after these religious leaders, they come to the conclusion, yep, what we thought he was saying, he really is saying. He's saying that he and God, that man, they're eyeball to eyeball. They're the same person. Jesus now is going to double down on this claim. He's not going to try to explain it more. He's just going to go forcefully, and he's going to make this statement in as forceful of a fashion that he can. Now, anytime in Scripture you see the two words together, truly, truly, what that means, it's, it's a phrase of speech. And in, what it actually means is, in the strongest possible terms, this is true. So right here, Jesus is saying, I always act in perfect harmony 
with God the Father. Whatever God does, that's what I do. And in verse 20, Jesus emphasizes his love between God the Father and God the Son. But look, look, look what tense he uses. He says that, that the Father loves the Son. What tense is that? That's the perfect tense. Why does that matter? It matters because anytime something is in the perfect tense, it means that it was true in the past, it's true in the future, and it's also true right now at this very moment. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is that God has always loved me, God will always love me, and God loves me even in this very moment. And as a result of God loving me, it's impossible for Jesus to be confused about what God wants him to do, not only in the Sabbath, but in his entire life. Let's keep reading, verses 21 through 23. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Here's the bottom line of what Jesus is trying to say here. What Jesus is saying is if you've seen me, you've seen God. If you want to know how God the Father would respond, look at what Jesus the Son actually does. So since the Father and the Son are one, to reject Jesus, to reject the Son, is to dishonor God the Father. Do you notice what Jesus is doing here? He's tying his authority directly to the authority of God himself. Friends, this is why it's so foundational, this is why it's so critical that we nail down this foundational truth. Because once we grasp the fact, once we come to grips with the fact that Jesus is God, then we no longer have to wonder, is Jesus still relevant today? We no longer have to ask the question, well, is this still in context? We don't have to ask that because if Jesus is God, then what Jesus said is true and that makes it relevant itself. We are to determine what is important. We, as followers of Jesus, we are to determine what is relevant by what Jesus says, not what the world says, not what culture says. This is a game changer once we nail this down. It turns our worldview upside down. It turns our priorities inside out to say, no longer am I going to worry if this fits our culture. I'm no longer going to worry if, if, I, if I feel like I'm sticking out because that's not what's relevant. This is what is relevant because this is what will stand the test of time. This is what will be true throughout all of eternity. Here's another reason why it's important that we nail this down. See, we live in a society today that likes to promote the equality of all religions. Let's don't argue all religions are all the same, right? Listen to me carefully on this. God's word makes this extremely clear. That is that any system of worship that does not honor Jesus Christ as the one true God is straight from hell. It is a lie from Satan himself. And one of the ways that Satan is trying to, to convince people that Jesus is not equality equal with God today is by saying this word that kind of tickles our ears. It's a real popular word in society today. And it's the word tolerant. That we should be tolerant of all religions. Especially liberals and non-Christians. They love to throw this word out. But friends, that's not what they mean at all. They don't mean that we should be tolerant. The true word for tolerance, the definition, would mean true tolerance is that all people have the right to choose what to believe. As a Christian, I believe that. You probably believe that as well. 
None of us wants to go and force someone to come to church. None of us wants to go and say, you must believe in Jesus. You, we're going to cram Jesus down your throat. Of course not. I think what you'll find all throughout history is that Christians have been on the front lines fighting for, relig for religious freedom, for religious liberty. Whether it is worshiping Jesus or not, having the right to choose who and how you are going to worship is something that we all should have in common. But listen to me. When people today use the word tolerant, that's not what they're talking about. What they mean is that all religions are equal, and because all religions are equal, they're all going to lead to the same place. Church, that's not tolerance. That's a lie. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're not judgmental. It makes us feel like we can be at peace and harmony with everyone else, but it is a lie from Satan himself. If we believe that the Bible is true, if we believe that Jesus is God's one and only son, then we believe that the only true God is worthy of worship and the only way that he accepts our worship is through his son, Jesus Christ. There's nothing equal about that. There's nothing equal between Christianity and all other religions. Either we believe all of what Jesus says or we believe none of it. But we must take a stand on what we believe. Let's look at our final verse in our text this morning. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but he has passed from death to life. What does it mean to hear and believe in God? Quite simply, it means that we submit to him, that we are going to submit to God's word. But friends, any talk of obeying God, any talk of pleasing God is empty and meaningless until you've accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. See, it's really easy to take God's word, to have a quiet time, to have a time where you read God's words and man, Jesus is a great guy. Jesus is a really good teacher. Jesus had some great moral lessons in there. You know what? I really respect Jesus. Let me try to put this in perspective for you, though. God made you. When God made you, your response, my response to him was that I rebelled against him. And in my rebellion, God said, well, there's going to punishment that must be made, but I'm not going to punish you. Instead, I'm going to send my one and only son that I love. I'm going to send him from heaven to earth. He's going to live a perfect life. He's going to be born of a woman, and he's going to die the most horrific death possible so that you could be freed, so that you could have forgiveness. And you want to tell me that your response to that is, oh, I respect you, Jesus. Oh, I think you're a great teacher. Let me say this as gently as possible. God did not send his son to die a horrific death so that you could say you respect him. No, he sent his son to die on the cross so that you would throw yourself down at his feet, that you would plead for mercy, that you would plead for forgiveness, and that you would find it in him. Because, friends, God is not after your respect. He's after you. He wants your heart. He wants your life. Not for you to think, oh, he's a great guy. He's a great teacher. He wants your life. He wants to, for you to become his child. And I'm begging you here this morning, 
If you have never accepted the love, the forgiveness, the mercy of Jesus Christ, of being forgiven of your sins, that today, that you would get that right. That you would accept the most precious gift that's ever been purchased for you. And for those of us here that we've already accepted that gift. We've already trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Here's the request I'm asking of you. Would you pray this week, God, will you show me one area of my life that doesn't line up with your word? One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin. Would we ask the Holy Spirit to come in and to convict us of one area of our life that does not line up with your word and then commit to doing whatever it takes to line up that area of life with him? Do you need to ask the Lord this morning for his help in transforming your life so that not only you recognize Jesus' authority in your life, but your life, it's proof to other people that you value and you treasure your relationship with Jesus above everything else. Friends, we only have one chance to get this right. We have one opportunity to get our identity and our purpose down right. Your children are watching. Your grandchildren are watching you. What do they see in your life concerning Jesus' authority, how you value, how you treasure him above everything else? Your words are important. Your actions are even more important. Would we ask the Lord this week, Holy Spirit, come and convict me and help my life continually be more and more like your son Jesus tomorrow than it was even today. Would you pray with me? Tell me, Father, we thank you. We thank you for the promises in your word that for those who trust in you, for those who call out for salvation, that you are that loving Father that runs towards us, that you wrap us in your arms, and we will find that forgiveness, we will find the mercy, the grace, we will find the worth that we have been searching for our entire life. Lord, I pray that if there is someone here in this room today that has never trusted you as Savior, they wouldn't leave here without getting that right. They wouldn't leave here without understanding that you and your goodness, you've already paid the price. You've already paid the debt that we owed by sending your son Jesus to die a death that he most certainly didn't deserve so that we might be called the righteousness of God. And Lord, for the rest of us, for those here who have trusted you for salvation, I pray that that's not the end but that you continue, Lord, to sanctify our lives, that you continue to purify us so that we would lay ourselves day after day at the foot of the cross, that we would carry that cross and we would say, God, what is it in my life that doesn't line up with your word and that we desire to look more like Jesus each and every day? Lord, we live in a dark world. We live in a world that is looking for hope, that is looking for purpose that is looking for answers in everywhere except the one place it can be found, which is in you. Give us a burden to share the hope 
that we have. Give us a burden, Lord, not to just keep this word contained in ourselves, but that it would overflow into our lives that we work with, that we live with, that we see on a regular basis, that we would have a burden to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. We thank you for Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.